Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Back in the late 80s when I was attending seminary in Kansas City, I had a a very unique experience. I, I had become casually acquainted with the the people that lived below us in the seminary housing, and they were from Colorado. When we were exchanging our stories together as a group there on campus, uh, they asked the question, why, why, what made you come to Kansas City? And, you know, I gave the answer. I really sensed the leading of the Holy Spirit to come here. They asked the person that lived below us, And he said, they allowed dogs in the housing on campus. And I thought, well, that's kind of different. The longer I came to know him, I I came to understand that he had a dog named Obadiah and, and that Obadiah actually went to school with him all the way through school up in the mountains of Colorado. And that dog was like his best friend. One day... We casually greeted each other, and, and he turned around and said to me, Hey, I think I want to be your friend. And I said, Okay. And he said, When would be a good time for me to interview you? And I said, oh, Interview me? And, and I, uh, he said, Yes. And I said, well, you know, I get out of class at this time. I could uh, probably meet with you at this time. So we scheduled a time. So I left our apartment upstairs after I laid my books and everything down, walked down the stairs, knocked on the door, and he said, come on in. Would you like some herbal tea? And I said, um, sure. And so I had my first celestial seasonings tea, and, and um, we were sitting there, and and I started talking. He said, wait, and I'm interviewing you. And I said, okay. And he said, what's your name? And I said, you know my name. And he said, no, your full name. And so I told him my full name, and, and we went from there. And he would ask me questions, and just out of courtesy, I would ask him a question. He'd say, no, I'm interviewing you for this friendship. And I said, okay. So, so anyway, not to go through the whole thing, but finally... We came to the end, and he said, okay, I do want to be your friend. And he shook my hand, and we became friends after an interview. And, and that was kind of strange, but as I walked back up the stairs trying to think how I'm going to tell Deanne this story, because I do that a lot, I thought, Man, somebody really wanted to know me. And something even greater is that God already knows everything about you. All the great stuff that people might compliment, all the yuck that you might hide. And so so God doesn't come to you to say, I want to know you. The whole picture in the Bible is that God comes and says, I want you to know me. 
And the only way we can know him is for him to take the initiative. Doesn't require an interview, doesn't require any of that. It just, it's him opening up who he is. And unless he does that, we can't know him. And in Psalm 19, we find a great picture of of the stages in which that happens and how God has manifested and revealed himself to us. And and the the beauty of this whole thing is you, you get a picture of the awesomeness of God when he reveals himself, but you also get a picture of the awfulness of sin. And it's in that tension between those two that we live in our relationship with God and and it's his sacrifice of his son for us that permits us even though plagued by sin to be forgiven by him and to be delivered from the penalty of our sin and ultimately one day from the power of sin so I want us to look at Psalm 19 with those thoughts that God wants us to know him. He wants to be known. So let's look at Psalm 19. We begin in verse 1 of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line or measuring line has gone through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. And I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And Father, that is our prayer today as we 
hear your word as I preach your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts and my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What a great picture of creation. Now, perhaps we've all had that experience where we're in a unique setting of scenery. And haven't you thought, I I just feel close to God in this setting. Why would that be? Well, the scripture just told us it is explaining and proclaiming that there is a creator. There, There is just this sense of his presence in his creation and this sense of his handiwork and and all of the beauty of it points to him but the reality is that's that's not full enough revelation to to really know him so i've heard people say through the years well i can worship god as well out on the lake as i do in the church and and i think well not if you fully understand god's revelation because the the very idea that that general revelation can do for you what the special revelation of God's Word can do is inaccurate, isn't it? And the very thought that you would choose the lake over worship calls into question what you're really worshiping. But here the psalmist begins by talking about that, that beautiful expression of God that he has put in creation. That's why... Secular scientists are so driven to find every place they can put doubt in people's minds, and and God has outreached them, hasn't he? He has loaded his creation with that evidence. So I want you to think about the last time you were completely overwhelmed by the reality of God's revelation of himself to you especially through his word. Well, let's look at Psalm 19. The first thing I want us to focus on in this passage is the glory of God is displayed in the works of God. The glory of God is displayed in the works of God. That's what the psalmist is saying to us. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Now, just think about that. God's fingerprints are unmistakable throughout his creation. There is that thumbprint and that fingerprint on everything he has created, especially upon human beings, because we are created in the image of God. But here he's talking about just nature itself points to the fact of a creator, because God's fingerprints are all over it. Heard this last week that they were able to deliver a pizza into space big deal. God could speak a pizza into existence. He wouldn't have to have it delivered. He has that creative, majestic 
power. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second, is that right? And it, it just wraps us up, and, and he spoke all of that into existence. Haven't you been in dark places before where you wish that you could say, let there be light, and there would have been light? And then you look at all that he's created from the very majestic to the very minute things. His fingerprints are all over creation. And so here it says that it shows his handiwork, the very work of his hands. Now, now just think about this. Not only did he create it, but he sustained it. Why is it? that our cars wear out quicker than we do. We make the cars. God created us to last for the days that he has allowed us, the days that he has designed for us. We are able to renew our strength and our energy. We, we are able to do so many things just because of God's creative and sustaining power in our lives. And then when you look at creation, just think about the, the spinning planets and the, the rate at which they spin and the rate at which they orbit and, and how far the sun is from the earth. And if it was any closer, we couldn't stand the heat. If it was any further, we would freeze. But it's the exact distance arriving at each place at the exact time. It is all over creation shouting, God made me. Then it says in verse 2 that there, it brings out perpetual praise. This glory of God is perpetually praised by his creation. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. It, it doesn't matter where you are or when you're there, there's this perpetual praise that is being sung and shouted from creation. In the daytime, it might be the, the, the beauty of an open sky. It might be a mountaintop or a whatever it might be. In the nighttime, it's the, the distant stars and the understanding that God flung them into space. Just all day and all night, every day, every night, there is that perpetual praise of the Creator because the Glory of God is displayed by the works of God. Then notice verse 3. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Yesterday, uh, we were challenged to be a part of Vision 2025, and that is to, to continue to spread the gospel to every language group, every people group, in their heart language, and to see them come to Christ. And so, it burdens my heart that there are so many people groups that are unreached or unengaged with the gospel, but here's the beauty of it. They are not unreached or unengaged by God. It says in every language and culture, they are shouting their witness to Him. So people may wonder, well, why would a 
a culture that's uneducated and isolated believe in a higher power? Well, they, they live in a world created by a creator and they, they know there had to be a higher power to create them and the things around them. And so that, that goes on perpetually praising God and it translates into all languages. Isn't that beautiful, this revelation of God that he's left in creation? Uh, but then notice in verse 4, their line or their measuring line has gone through the whole earth and their words to the end of the world transcends all limitations. When we think about spreading the gospel, there are limitations that we are desperate for God to help us break through. One of those are religious barriers. Another one are political barriers at times. Others are language barriers and cultural barriers, all these barriers, barriers but the, the revelation of God in that general creation when, which he has made, it bursts through all of those barriers and it translates and it transforms people's view of the things that they're looking at. It's just astounding when you think about the, the majesty of that. And then he points to the sun as the, the very shadow of his brilliance. It's the shadow of his brilliance. Notice what it says in verse 5, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Now, in our culture, doesn't that sound kind of strange that um, the bridegroom is coming out of his chamber? You see, in the, in the Jewish culture, they would refer to the chamber of the bridegroom, not the bridal room. Why? Because at, at a Jewish wedding, the focus was on the, the bridegroom coming to receive his bride. That's why that image of the second coming is so beautiful. It, it, it's that, that Jewish imagery that the bride is here making herself ready to receive her bridegroom when he arrives. And when you read the scripture in, in, with that perspective, it, it brings passages more to life because that's the setting. It, it wasn't the, the, the bridegroom here waiting for the arrival of the bride. It would be the bride awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom to come and, and take her and shelter her and lead her and protect her. What a beautiful image that is. So just think about that. It says the sun is like the bridegroom brilliantly leaving his chamber and coming forth. It's like the strong man running a race. It, it, it never relinquishes. It never exhausts itself. It's, it's always moving and shining and spinning and orbiting and or things orbiting around it. But it, it's telling us here that the sun is just a, a shadow of the brilliance of God. It would be like me lighting a match and saying, man, look how bright that is. And you'd be thinking, that's not bright. Go look at the sun. What this passage is telling us, you look at the sun, you think that's too bright to look at. You think that's bright. You ought to see the brilliant majesty of God himself. Notice how it continues in verse 6. It's rising. It's from one end of heaven 
and its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. All of that seems to be so majestic and wonderful, but then we begin to talk about the revelation of God in a special way through his word, and and the Son is overshadowed by that revelation of the Creator. So first of all, in those first six verses, we see that the glory of God is displayed in the works of God, but secondly, the greatness of God is magnified in the Word of God. Notice how he states it here. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And just think about the law of God. It stands the test of time. It's never had to be adapted. You know what you never find here? You never find God having the book of amendments in the back or revisions or a little piece of paper in the front that says these are some mistakes in here that we've corrected. Although, you know, there are groups, one based out of Salt Lake City that says there is a book more inspired than the Bible, but it's gone through revision, correction, etc., hundreds and hundreds of times. But the Bible, the, the Word of God has stood the test of time. History, archaeology, science, all confirm what the Bible had to say. But we act as if it's a new discovery. No, the, the Bible is more rev- re- relevant than the next scientific or archaeological discovery. It's the standard. The law of the Lord is is perfect. You might say, well, that's not that big of a deal. Okay. Is the law to wear masks perfect? We'd be divided on that, wouldn't we? The world is divided on that right now. Mask or no mask? Do we mandate it or not mandate it? Well... As a church, we're going to take precautions as necessary. We're going to do what what we're required to do, but that's one of those shifting and changing laws or requirements or mandates, all of that. But you think about the unshifting, unchanging Word of God. The law stands. And not only are we capable as human beings of breaking the law, but the law actually breaks us because we cannot keep it. We cannot live up to it. It is perfect and we are not. So what a picture that is of God's special revelation through his word. It's perfect converting the soul. What that's talking about is is that the law is perfect, therefore it doesn't adapt to us or to circumstances. We are converted by the law. We are drawn to be that perfect expression of that we find in the law. The reality is, apart from Christ, there is no keeping of that law that is pleasing to God because only Christ was that sinless, perfect human being, God-man, who lived out the entire law without sin. So just think about the beauty of that, and it points not only to the perfection of the law, but the perfection of Jesus Christ who 
by whom all things were created, without whom nothing was created that has been created. He is the sustainer of all things, the scripture tells us. And, and the law and creation point to all of that about Jesus. But then it goes on in verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the law is sure. It's certain. Now, this probably wouldn't happen in in Crockett, but there are places you might hear something in the community and you might think, are you sure about that? Well, yeah, I'm sure because so-and-so told me and -and so-and-so told them and they heard that so-and-so said this and, well, they're just a bunch of so-and-sos, right? They don't know anything because as it's passed around, there's it's not sure, it's not certain. How many things have we heard that were not true or certain? But the, the Bible tells us when God gives a testimony, it's sure. If he makes a promise, it's as good as already kept. If he gives a prophecy, it's just as good as already fulfilled. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. Haven't you seen that? Someone who may struggle in our educational system, someone who does not have degrees after their name, which those degrees do not make you anything special. But the reality is, even without all of that, someone with learning disabilities can pick up the Word of God and gain wisdom from it and become just as wise as anyone else at times. Because the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And the reality is we all fall into that category. We are all simpletons in the sight of a holy, all-knowing, almighty God. Then you move on and and it, it keeps moving. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. You know, one of my goals as a dad was to be a good example. Isn't that what all of you guys want as Christian dads? You want to be a good example. You, even with all of my failure, with all my sin, all my struggle, I, I, I want to teach my boys even now what an older Christian man looks like. How you exercise faith when your body begins to falter some, those kind of things. And, and, and I want my, my example to be right. But I don't always get it right. I, I don't always say what is right. I don't always do what is right, but here it says the statutes of the Lord are right. Always right. Have you known someone that thought they were always right? Well, the reality is God and his statutes are always right, and that brings joy to the heart. What is this saying? It's saying when when you live by the statutes or the teachings of Scripture... And, and you do what is right 
in the eyes of God and right in the word of God, you have great joy in your heart from God. It, it rejoices the heart. Then it goes on and it, it says the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Uh, the commandment of the Lord is pure. It's not politically motivated. It's not trying to be politically correct or politically incorrect. It's not caught up in the culture. It's not looking for human approval. The, the commandment is pure. It's God giving a command, and that commandment of the Lord and the commandment of the Lord could encompass all of the, the law given in the Word of God. That commandment is pure, and it enlightens the eyes. I've had conversations with my sons that say, you know, I never understood why you did this or why you wanted us not to do that or to do this, but now as a dad, I get it. Haven't you seen that with God? The longer you live and the more obedient you become to him and you look at what happens in lives that are wrecked and ruined by disobedience and defiance of God. And, and, and you find yourself grateful to God because he has enlightened your eyes to see the goodness of his commands because his commands are pure. But then it says, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear is, is like a resulting perspective of, of having a healthy view of the law and the commands of God. And, and it brings a great depth of reverence and fear under his searchlight. Because you see the untainted purity of his commandments and the purity of his law, then that searchlight into our hearts shows us the, the tainted impurities that are there. It becomes clear. We stand in awe and fear. Have you ever found yourself fearing what people might think about you more than you fear what God does know about you? Not that you run afraid, but you have this reverence and awe and fear that you're not an exception. Your life could unravel with disobedience in any season of your life. And then it says the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The verdicts of God are never falsely made. When you are condemned under the law of God, it's not a false condemnation. You have been condemned. The judgments of God are true and righteous altogether. And it says that because of that, because his word is permanent and perpetually pure and powerful, his word is desperately desirable above all the cravings of our flesh. Notice the picture there. 
More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Years ago, the wealthiest person in the world had the last name of Rockefeller. Someone asked him, how much money is enough? And he said, a little bit more. It just doesn't satisfy, does it? But the word of God is satisfactory for us. It satisfies us. And we could have all the the wealth of the world, but Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, that's an exaggeration of impossibility. There's no way any one person could gain all the world. But Jesus was exaggerating there for a point saying, even if a person could, that would still be nothing compared to the price of your soul. What if I asked you, could I buy one of your eyes? You have beautiful eyes, and I I just think that would be cool to have one of your eyes. You're not going to sell me an eye. That's valuable to you. But your soul is even more valuable because that inner part of you is that which lasts forever. And so we should cherish that and, and treasure it. And the word of God could be, should be something that we treasure and value because it transcends even our physical life here. It, it stands forever. It's more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, and sweeter than honey and the honey that's dripping in the comb. Any material, physical desires, cravings of the flesh, the word of God satisfies to a greater extent any longing of our heart. And it is richly rewarding to all who obey it. Notice what it says in verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Now, it doesn't say here, if you obey God and you live by the commands of his word as his child, you might receive a few dividends. No, it's saying there is great reward. It's already said it may not be financial because it's greater than that. It may not be the abundance of things because it's greater than that. It's eternal, it's greater and longer and lasting than that, but by these the servant is warned, the one who submits himself as a servant of God, and in keeping these there is great reward. So you have that special revelation that goes out throughout the earth. Here you have that, I mean that general revelation that goes throughout the earth, and then you have this special revelation that comes through the word of God. So how do you respond to all of that, the judgments, the commands, all of that? Well, the psalmist being caught up in that beginning, talking, using the word Elohim to refer to God, the, the, the great God of creation, he turns and starts using that word Lord. Speaking of his word, the one who has magnificently displayed himself to us through his word as well, but to a greater extent than creation. He uses the word Yahweh, the highest form and title for God. And so he moves into this next section to conclude the psalm. He's told us the glory of God is displayed in the works of God. The greatness of God is magnified in the word of God. 
But now he's going to tell us the grace of God is experienced in the ways of God. The grace of God is experienced in the ways of God. Who can understand his errors? He's talked about the necessity that we are desperately dependent upon to know what is right, what is wrong, what is pure, impure, what is holy and unholy. He's talked about that, that special revelation. And then, then he turns and he begins to talk about himself and about the human condition. He says, who can understand his errors? You see, every day there are sins that we commit that we don't recognize and sometimes are not even aware of. Like living without acknowledging God in situations. Living with an unthankful heart, and, and sometimes we get used to living like that. We become the kind of person that can light up a room by leaving it. Because we, we live with this negative perspective, not gracious and grateful for the things of God. And so here's the picture. He says, who can understand his errors, those unintentional sins, those things about him that are, are not right because we have this propensity to compare ourselves to others and we say, well, compared to them, I'm right. But the reality is compared to him, there are so many errors that I cannot even begin to comprehend about myself. One commentator says this, no arithmetic arithmetic no arithmetic yeah no arithmetic I'm good in math I'm not just good reading these terms no arithmetic can number our sins before we can recount a thousand we shall commit ten thousand more just think about that no arithmetic can number our sins before we can't recount a thousand, we shall commit ten thousand more. But then he refers to secret faults. Not just these errors, but cleanse me from secret faults, those faults and sins that are hidden and concealed. You know what Satan's really good at? bringing sin close to us to where we think we can hide it and conceal it. On our phones, on the internet, thinking, yeah, we can, nobody's going to know this. I know how to beat the system. There's nothing hidden from God. And so he's crying out, God, I want to be so pure because I've, I've reflected on your general revelation, now your special revelation in your word, and I want to be so pure Cleanse me from these secret faults in my life, secret sins, hidden sins. Someone says secret sins like private conspirators must be hunted out or they may do deadly mischief in your life. Just because it's hidden doesn't mean it's harmless. That's the lie that we buy from the enemy at times. But then his, his prayer continues. Notice there he says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That means, the word presumptuous means one who is arrogant or proud. 
One who willfully commits sins or flagrantly disobeys God. Keep me back from those presumptuous sins. You know something that just nauseates me to hear? You hear people say, me and the man upstairs have an understanding. Everybody's got their sin, this one's mine. God doesn't say in his word, hey, come pick your sin, pick it closely and carefully because that's going to be your one sin for the rest of your life. It, It doesn't say that at all, does it? That nauseates me to hear that kind of stuff. First of all, to refer to him as the man upstairs, he is not a man. He's not just upstairs. He is beyond us, and he is the God of creation. But the other thing is, he he doesn't have an understanding with us. He has made that understanding with us that we better understand what happens when we live disobedient and defiant to him. That's what the psalmist is talking about. Guard me from these presumptuous sins or yeah, I, I can handle this. This is not a problem. This is no big deal. Tell that to the, the firefighters. Years ago up near Los, uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico, where they had a controlled burn that got out of control. It was so devastating and damaging. As far as sin is concerned, there is no such thing as a controlled burn. You do not have control of it. It has control of you, and it will destroy you. And to act arrogantly as if, well, this this has destroyed other people, but I got it together. It's no big deal. It says, take care not to be proud because then you will fall. That's the gist of what the Scripture says. So, Those errors, faults, presumptuous sins. And then he says, God, if you'll do all of that and and not let them have dominion over me, what he's saying is they're going to take charge of me if I don't give you complete charge of my life and you can only, only you can protect me from the dominion of these sins, then I shall be blameless, not morally perfect, but undeniably allegiant to God and his word. That's what that means. When I get it wrong, I immediately make it right. I have this desire to walk with God and to please, with, please him. So he says, then I will be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression because sin never stays small, does it? It always grows and magnifies and stretches, and and it's one step at a time until you look back and you wonder, how did I get from here to there? You did it one sin at a time, and it got bigger, and it got worse, and it got deeper, and it got more painful, and it got harder to overcome, and you've wrapped yourself in these chains, and Satan has locked them together, and you're captured, and you need God to break that dominion. He says, help me avoid those great sins by taking care of these small or hidden sins. And then he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart 
be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. You know what he's saying? God, help me live this day as if you're the only one watching me. Let me live this day as you're, you're the only one available to talk to. Let me live this day as if you're the only one I have ever wanted to please, and may I grow to live that way totally. And he's crying out to him as his shelter or his sheltering rock of perfection and as his redeemer, the only one who can redeem and restore us. So the scripture says there is a general revelation of God. In Romans 1.20, it says this. Romans 1.20, it says, For since the creation of the world... God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What he's saying is, no one has an excuse before God. We will all be judged based upon our response to God's revelation of himself to us, specifically in the person of Christ. You might say, well, what about the people who have never heard? There is a way that God is going to get the word to them, either by an instrument or directly, but we are all held accountable to God by how we respond to the sacrifice of his son. So that's what it's saying. Even this general revelation, it, it gives us a picture of his attributes and his Godhead, But then there's that special revelation that we've talked about in the Word of God. The Word of God pierces us, it says in Romans, I mean Hebrews 4.12, like a a two-edged sword piercing to the vision of thoughts and the intents of the heart. We are accountable to Him based on the revelation of His Word, that special revelation, but the ultimate revelation of God was fully revealed after the psalmist wrote Psalm 19. And that ultimate revelation of God is is not just a general revelation of himself or even a special revelation of himself through his word, but the incarnational revelation of himself in the form of his son. Here's what it says in Hebrews 1. God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the power of his word, when he had by himself purged or cleansed our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And when you come to understand that God 
has said, I want to know you in creation. He said, I want to know you through his word, but ultimately, I want to know you through my son. And not just, he's not really saying, I want to know you. I want you to know me that way. Just look at my creation. Look into my word and, and come to my son. He is the express image of my brilliant glory, the scripture says. And he gave himself and died to cleanse our sins and to conquer that in our life. And he is seated at the majesty on high. Isn't that a beautiful picture for us? So when the psalmist says, let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, my question to you is, is he your strength and your redeemer? Oh, I experience it when I look at nature. No, 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 that's not the question. Is he your strength and your redeemer? Oh, well, I've, I've read the Bible. No, 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 that's, that's not it. Not, it. It goes even deeper than that. Is he personally your strength and your redeemer, and have you responded to his revelation of himself in Jesus Christ to you? You see, in that seminary apartment, Michael said, okay, I want to be your friend. What if I said, this is weird, I, I think I'm going to bow out. How many untold People have done that with the revelation of God to them. But the scripture says we are held accountable to that revelation of Jesus Christ to us. And many, just like Judas, get right to the door and then turn and walk away. What a tragedy that is. And so you're faced with that decision. It determines your eternal destiny. And if God is drawing you to himself today, you have a choice to make because Jesus lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death for you, rose from the dead to conquer death, sin, hell, and the grave. But you have to appropriate that by reaching out to him and giving yourself to him. The Bible words for that are to, to repent and believe. It all happens where you turn and you believe in him. And you say, I want to know you. And, and he's already said, I want you to know me. And then you're in relationship with him. Are you there? Is he your sheltering rock? Is he your redeemer? If not... Please consider trusting him alone today for your salvation. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www. 
firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.